Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the vestigial podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. I am your newly minted host, Rob Zachney, and I would like to welcome back to the show, uh, after an astonishing six-day absence, Troy Goodfellow. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Uh, it's odd not to be in the host seat, but I will still be around. Can't get rid of me. Vestigial or not. God knows I tried. I, I told you the wrong time, and yet you're here. Um... With me tonight is returning guest Jen Cutter of GamePro. Uh, Jen, thanks for coming back. I decided to stick around for one more. And joining us for the first time is Greg Tito of The Escapist. Uh, Greg, thanks for coming on tonight. No problem. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, to be here and uh, you know to see how all the magic happen. Oh, and it is magical. <laughs> um, and what we're going to discuss is the magic we saw in New York uh, at the Paradox Convention. And I guess I just wanted to get started right away on what sort of were, were the games we, we came away um, thinking about the most? What, what are we most excited about? What are we most hopeful about? And Greg, since your first time on the show, uh, I figure we start with you. Um, what was your big takeaway game? Um, I, there were so many awesome games that I was actually kind of, these are all games that I would play as a strategy fan, but uh, the one that I keep thinking about is Salem. Uh, which is uh, an MMO uh, that is trying to do a whole bunch of new things uh, that the MMO genre hasn't really done before. Uh, I think it's. I think they're going to release it free to play. Uh, so they're trying to. Uh, Paradox is really trying to break into that market, and uh, you know, just the idea of having a. a an MMO where crafting is the focus, and so many of the the game systems kind of work together. The the, the idea that you have. Uh, the, the different the four different humors uh, uh, phlegm uh, blood black bile and yellow bile and those are your those are your powers those are your uh, you know your pools of resources um, I just think that that is very cool and uh, it all relates to all the other stuff uh, in the game and then of course you can die for real permanent death uh, is exciting for any MMO I think um, because it adds like so much risk to all the time that you invest in it. Um, and I think that alone is going to is going to make it stand out. Uh, Jen, I remember you seemed a little high on this game too. Uh, I thought it was interesting. I, I wouldn't say high. I, I can't wait to I can't wait for the game to be released, and then all I'm going to do is stalk the forums for all of the crime, because it will be epic. So let's let's go into a, a little bit what what this game is. It's called Salem, um, and now as I understand this, it's it. It's set in sort of a fantastical uh, colonial Virginia. Is that right? Uh, actually, Massachusetts. Up by you. Okay. I know I heard them talking about Virginia, which struck me as a little weird, but uh, there, were, there were definitely pilgrim hats. Yeah, yeah. And I think you walk off the docks in Boston. I think Boston is actually the, the, the starting area. The, the introductory trailer mentioned Virginia. They had a bunch of, you know, old ancient American documents they were citing. So one of them was a Virginia colonial compact, and that's where Virginia pops up, but it's not in the game itself. It is a mythical, fantastical New England. Okay. Um, so, I gotta admit, like, that, that, that game kind of left me cold. It looked uh, really grindy, to be honest. Now, like, I kept asking, you know, like, you know, in so many words, I was, try I was trying to get at, and that's fun, how? Because as nearly as I could tell, it sounded like there was... Um, well, I mean, it, it was described as a crafting MMO, and it pretty much looked like if you took um, if you took World of Warcraft 
and took out most of the you know combat and quests and just went and started like mining ore veins or fishing um that's that seemed to be what you were left with in salem I, I I definitely agree, and I'm, of course I'm the WoW player who spends spends way too much time, you know, crafting and doing those, you know, going to nodes, and gets more excited about that than I do about killing monsters. Uh, so maybe for some reason that appeals to me more. Um, but I, I like that you move all the combat, and they still have some kind of a game there. Uh, the thing that the, the the you level up by eating <laughs> in in Salem, and I think that alone. It's such an interesting mechanic because your crafting suddenly has a reason. Uh, the whole reason that you're crafting and, and, and forming all these community ideas is is to get more food, which makes you more powerful. Uh, and that is exactly like what settling a new world really is all about. You know, like if you can fi- if form a village and, and cooperate with your fellow players, uh, just for all of you to be well fed, that seems really interesting. It's American oh. microcosm. Cooperation is definitely the key there. Uh, so I believe they said the world was going to be 25 kilometers by 25 kilometers. Uh, so you, you've got a, a good space of land, but eventually all of that land will be taken. And eventually you are going to have to team up, form a village. I don't know if they're going to call it a, a clan or anything. And you're going to hope that everybody gets along because a griefer can really do a lot of damage here. Yeah, there's really a potential for <laughs> the existing self-policing and I don't know. My, I'm not a huge MMO player, but I do follow, you know, the MMO theory and all of this. And I just wonder, has there ever really been a good self-policing mechanism uh, in an MMO? Have where people get together and they have you can oh you can track sense and you can find the criminal and use summary executions. Well, that's not going to be very popular, especially now with permadeath. Right. So I mean, I so I, I, I just. Permadeath is one of these ideas that always sounds great, that really grindy and serious. But then you think, well, what are the implications of this? Um, it's I mean, the witch be- trials. Come on. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, it's certainly an interesting model, and they're very excited about it. Um, it's, which is, it. It looks a bit cartoony. It doesn't look like a very serious game. Um, it's got a very interesting art style. It, the crafting stuff kind of reminds me a bit of Minecraft. You know, you can you build and you construct things, and we saw none none of the combat really, or monsters. Um, right. So how that works in uh, is still up in the air. But it's it was certainly a game that caught my eye more because it shows you know paradox you know really sticking its neck out in some new directions. Um, even though the people say the free to play market's kind of crowded, uh, they all, they're certainly going to give this a shot. I think I definitely agree with you, Troy, in that it's it's got the most potential to be an amazing, you know, revolutionary kind of game. Uh, now, whether that will come true, uh, or if anybody will even play it when it comes out, I mean, that that's the big question. Now, I did want to ask because <clears throat> because you said you're 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 one of those crafting guys. You, you enjoy that part of WoW, and that sort of makes you click with this game a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's it's something that sort of always baffles me. Like I talked to Julian Murdoch and he plays WoW, but you know, he he plays it for high-level quests, um for hanging out with his friends and doing missions. But like I look at I look at I look at someone like hacking at a tree for 20 minutes and that's kind of what what is going on in Salem. Um and I'm thinking that looks excruciating. Um right. And why like 
this is this is my perspective. Like, why wouldn't I rather spend that time playing um, a real game? Um, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, if you if you're going to boil it down, like that's that's kind of that, you know, I come with that you know superior attitude. You know, like, well, that's that's not a real game. That's just that's just sucking your precious life away. Um, so why are you okay with that, Greg? I I think it 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 really speaks to a psychological need in me. I don't know. I'm like the kind of guy who in my house I will get a, a profound joy from having the last half bowl of cereal that's left in the cereal box and finishing it up and then throwing it away. <laughs> I don't know why. So I think that speaks a lot to what I get out of crafting in MMOs is because here I am I'm using all of these resources and and you know in, in WoW for example I have uh, eight characters on one server and they all have different um, uh, you know, they used to be called trade skills, but professions now that all interlock and they all have materials that one guy needs to make and then he sends it via the mail system to another guy and I get a profound amount of, you know, just fun from from having this little like corporation of characters together uh, that don't need anyone else, you know, and don't and 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 can work off each other. And I see seeds of that in Salem. Um, the only downfall is that I'd have to actually talk to other people in the game, uh, <laughs> which I'm not. I'm, that's not really what I like to do in MMOs. Uh, I'm a much more of a solo kind of person. So, uh, anything. I think Salem is going to be a game that I am going to enjoy. Uh, I'm glad that it exists. You know, like Eve Online, I think is a very interesting game because of its simulationism uh, and it has this whole simulated economy. I'm never going to play it, uh, and I think like Salem is the exact kind of same thing. I think it's really interesting and it has a lot of high concepts and and will provide those simulation kind of things uh, that I love. Um, but it remains to see if it actually is fun. Just like you said, I mean, chopping down a tree for 20 minutes, yeah, that's not fun. Well, I can tell you what does sound fun is being like the Hannibal Lecter of this little frontier village. Like, that's that's going to be me in that game, pretty much, is like, you know, massacring <laughs> my, my fellow denizens of that world <laughs> um, and seeing if I can get away with it. Um, but anyway, so so Jen, um, for Actually, you, I want to talk to Greg for a sec. Greg, so since you like those kind of games, how come you haven't have you ever jumped into love at all? Because that was the first thing that popped into my mind after Minecraft when seeing Salem. Because you get together with people, you build your villages, you manage your resources, you can take on other AI villages if you want, and it's a gorgeous art style. Right. Yeah, I've I've heard a lot of good things. I've read a lot about love, but I haven't uh, taken the plunge. Um, yeah, and no one actually really described it that way to me that it would that it would appeal to my crafting kind of nature. So, you're dangling the carrot, and I'm just gonna now. I'm great. I'm gonna have a, a love addiction now. Thanks. Well, now if we if we follow up on that a little bit, because I've always sort of my information might be wildly out of date, but I was sort of thought love was kind of a team battle game, basically. Like you built for you built fortresses and somebody had to guard them and you fought with other teams and you fought over terrain. Uh, is there more to it than that? Uh, I haven't played in a while myself. I just like looking at all the you know pretty areas and I walk around until <laughs> I die. Uh, I don't know how far it has developed. I want to jump back into that as well, but as you know, time. I'm a recovered WoW addict, <laughs> yes. and I'm I'm staying away from you know DC Online and from Final Fantasy 14 and all the free-to-play RPGs out there. So I'm I'm the worst person to jump back into these. Maybe you should play Final Fantasy 14 to you know reinforce your hatred of the of the yeah, genre. Yeah, see, I'm one of the people that actually liked 11, so oh. I'm worried that I might like 14. Interesting. Um, so from the ParadoxCon, what do you worry you might like? 
Uh, well, Magicka is kind of the the automatic given for me. It's like, ooh, you get to be wizards and make stuff blow up, and there's co-op, hooray! And, and that's already out, and I've actually been playing it all day. No, I, I heard that the uh, multiplayer isn't really functioning yet. No, it's very, very, very broken. I think some people have been lucky enough to connect and stay connected for a little bit, but I am not one of those people. Um, as a solo experience, has it, has it really been working for you? I don't think Magicka was conceived or designed as a solo experience because it can be pretty trying at times. You can get stunlocked if you get stuck in a corner with charging enemies. And checkpoints tend to be not too great. You'd like a little bit more in solo because there's nobody to bring you back as soon as you die back mm. to the beginning you go. But it's still a lot of fun and, and it gives you time to practice spells without blowing up all of your friends. Which, though, is also a feature. <laughs> Yes, I played it. I think I, I think I blew up Quentin Smith a few times. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know. I think Magic is definitely something that it surprised me how 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 hot that game seemed after after the convention. Uh, it was a game that I hadn't really heard of going into it, and it was like from the moment it was shown, it was on everybody's lips. And then since I got back from this thing, it's all I've heard people talking about. It's Perhaps that's why the, the servers don't work. <laughs> I know, like, because the Steam version goes through Steamworks, and I thought that was going to be good to go, which was why they held off on uh, on releasing the other versions right now. But hopefully, they said they're releasing a patch every day. They patched today to make the single player more stable, because a couple of unfortunate video card people were crashing the desktops a lot. And there'll be another patch tomorrow, and we'll see how it builds from there. So, what, Jen, what do you think is the secret for why Magic has taken off, as Rob says? I mean, you've put in quite a bit of time on it. This was the game that you came to New York to see, more or less. Magic is a really new thing for Paradox. I always know them for the strategy games that seem way too hard for me to get into, as we'll probably talk about later. But Magicka, it's just super accessible, bright primary colors everywhere, and I love that everything is available right at the start of the game. There's no level system, there's no inventory management, you have your elements, you have your runes, go to town, start learning and playing with combinations. Yeah, it's something that I'm looking forward to jumping into probably tonight once we're finished uh, this recording. Um, I didn't get a hands-on because Jen hogged the controller. Uh, yes. But it, <laughs> it, it's the controller versus the keyboard. I mean, this is, I guess, the debate that's going to be happening. Some people are going to like one more than the other. I started with a controller, which was really fun. You've used left analog stick for movement, and the right analog stick was actually how you selected spells. So as you rotated the right stick around, you see the elements and you can combine them, you know, almost Street Fighter style, and that was really fun. And then I came back, I watched the devs play with the keyboard, and they seemed much, much faster. So I tried again with the keyboard, and you know what? I while it was faster in terms of ordering elements, the movement with the mouse really annoyed me, so I'm back to a controller now and super fast. You, you really get the hang of it within a single level. Now, are you usually a mouse and keyboard gal? Or? Uh, no, I'm going to confess. I'm totally a, a console kid. Okay. Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm just I'm wondering if that if that might be the issue. You know, it's it's going to be the standard shooter dichotomy, right? Where each side is convinced they're getting the better end of the deal. Well, my big problem was it's not like uh, click and then your person moves there. You have to keep holding the mouse down uh, while swinging around to to move. And I found that really annoying. I'd rather just hold the stick down. I guess that's that's one thing I, uh, that 
that kind of struck me about this convention, Troy, is, is that it, it seems like Paradox is definitely making a more concerted effort to not just be the strategy guys. Yeah, and even in the strategy realm, they're spreading their wings. You had light sims uh, like Cities in Motion, a tower defense game based in the Majesty universe, a Hearts of Iron card game. I mean, still a bulk. I mean, most of the games there are pretty hardcore, serious strategy crap. I mean, we're talking Supreme Ruler. <laughs> that's that's what they love to hear. <laughs> Supreme Ruler, Crusader Kings, Pride of Nations, Sword of the Stars 2, King Arthur. These are not these are not light strategy games, uh, but Paradox is, you know, busting out to try new stuff, and it's great to see them do that, but without abandoning uh, the core audience and the core marketing that they know well. And their forum, you know, eats up stuff like Pride of Nations. I don't know what they're going to do with what Realms of Ardania or Dreamlords, um, but that's that's a different audience. That's some people they're trying to target, and it's good to see them try it, and it's good to see them, you know, put as much muscle behind those new genres as they did behind the games uh, that, you know, that I fell in love with when I first played uh, Europa Universalis. But why, do, why do you think that uh, the, the strategy games that you mentioned as being like the, the, the tough ones, you know, uh, they seem to all have the same interface. And <laughs> when, you, when you say light, inter, light strategy games, those are the ones that with a more, I don't want to say well-designed strategy, uh, interface, but they are much more ap- appealing to the eye. Do you think that's the major difference between a hardcore strategy game and a light strategy game? <sighs> this is something that I'm working. I'm writing a beginner's guide to Europa Universalis three, right? And you know, the interface is really the, the most of these games really aren't that hard. They really people like to think they're complicated. They're not. They're complex. Generally, the idea is if something if you expect something to happen, the cause and effect, it can happen. The trick's finding the information, mm-hmm. um, and. Paradox has never been really great with UI. It's been getting a lot better, uh, but they're improving. Uh, but it's, I don't think that they have the same UI, because really, in Supreme Ruler's UI is completely different than uh, Crusader King's UI. Uh, it looks similar if you just see it as a bunch of numbers, but it's, a UI is you know, where the numbers are. Can you find the numbers? Do the numbers make sense? Cities in Motion has a lot fewer things to track, so of course you can make things bright and colorful, and you can have really big icons. Hey, that's a that's a money bag. That must have something to do with money. Well, okay, great. And you open it. It's just a two or three sliders. Um, you do that in Pride of Nations. You open up the money bag, and oh look, I've got I can buy 80 different resources. Now what the hell do I do? Um, so it's that next step uh, beyond the UI. Um, but I certainly they could use good UI designers. I think the issue is they have a lot of small development teams, and UI is not glamorous. UI is very difficult. UI requires art as well as, you know, understanding who your users are. And you look at some of the stuff coming out of Ajod and coming out of Battlegoat and coming out of Kerberos, and you wonder, okay, are they making the next leap? Um, And if you're a small team like all of these teams are, uh, sometimes just getting the game to work is more important than making the game comprehensible. Do, do you feel that, that another part of it is, um, I, think both, I think both in the case of Battlegoat and uh, Ajod, um, they've kind of been working, they've kind of been working within the same template uh, for a number of games. Do you think they're just starting to assume knowledge on the part of, on the part of users that it makes perfect sense to, it makes perfect sense to us? Because you've played the last three games, is that right. what you're saying? 
that's always a problem. And that's what I'm finding when I'm writing out my EU3 beginner's guide. I'm really just starting from scratch thinking, yeah, okay, this, this guy with the funny hat makes a lot of sense to me. But I have to explain not just who he is, but why he's important, why you want to pay attention to this number and what affects this number. Um, I mean, I, I've been playing this series from the very beginning, so I know what guys in funny hats mean. Uh, <laughs> but you have to break this down. And yeah, you, you, you can get to this groinyard capture thing, as Greg Costacan called it. The idea that, you know, you just design the user interface for people who already know the user interface. Um, but, I mean, Paradox itself, the in-house studio, has been making great progress in UI. Um, the small, is, is Ajaw doing the same thing over and over again? I'm not sure they are because Pride of Nations is so different from, you know, war in Prussia. Uh, the Battle Goat guys, they've always had issues with, you know, making their game comprehensible, but at least they don't have, you know, a bunch of micro-nations anymore. The Cold War does look to be actually simpler than their previous games. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm really the. I mean, I know this stuff. I know these games cold. So it's, I, I know what a good UI is and what a bad UI is. But it's trying to have somebody new who's not as intimate with the series. Like, uh, Greg, I'm not sure how many of the games you've played. Jen, I'm not sure how many you've played, um, or even looked at. And then <laughs> just, hey, uh, except for the occasional cursing, I will do. Uh, it's. Um, it, it's a thing. I mean, it's there. There is progress is being made, but it's slow. The um, only thing I, I I would disagree with you yep. is on cities in motion, uh, yep. because from the small presentation that we got at the Paradox Convention, I could totally understand how you think. Oh, this is it's it, there's there's not a lot of factors here, uh, but I actually downloaded the preview uh, and yep. was playing around with it a bit, and there is a, a huge amount of information there. I think almost on par with uh, Europa Universalis. Um, and it's just presented in a way that's a lot uh, more pleasing to the eye. Um, and I, I yeah, I've, I've I've also played the preview. It's it's a, and I'm not saying it's a simple game. Like these traffic sims can be pretty complex. Like right. I mean, even even something like a you know, roller coaster tycoon has a lot of different factors going on. Um, right. But you're dealing with you know pretty much just an economic system. I mean, it's an economic and a movement system. You don't have to add on political and military and trade. It's, you know, is the money coming in and are people going where you need to go? Um, so you can have a lot more detail and a lot new spaces, but really you're just tracking two or three different variables in three or four different ways. Hmm. Um, as opposed to 50 different variables you have to track in 100 different ways. Um, so it's, and so in, in many ways that can make a UI we're going to do a UI show, Rob, or you're going to do a UI show. Yeah. <laughs> because here we are talking about it so much. Uh, it's when you have that many, when you have a few things you're tracking, in many ways you can make your UI broader uh, as well as deeper. You can have so many different ways to get all of the information. Um, right. Drilling down as quickly. You can, you can have more menus. And I'm really an opponent against having too many menus. My rule is if I can't find what I need to know within two clicks, then your UI is a failure. Um, then I, I think I think cities in motion because it is tracking you know some very important things that you really need to know. They can do a lot of neat stuff with making it look obvious uh, without overwhelming it because you can use colors uh, very obviously. Um, you do that with say an EU game or a Crusader. How many different map modes does EU have? Because you want to track religion and culture and who owns what and who belongs to what and where the revolts going to happen. Um, very many different map modes, 
mm-hmm. cities in motion, you can get away with two. Um, well, I, well, I, there's there's tons of map modes though. There's yeah. lots of different information of you know where people are living, where you right. know they're working and playing. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a, yeah, I was it was elaborate. I was exaggerating for effect. I mean, certainly it is more than two. Yeah, but it's, but, it, but it isn't. But I'm I'm not saying it's a I'm not saying it's a bad game or not a deep game. I'm saying that the UI challenges there are, are different. A different different order of magnitude from what uh, Paradox France, i.e. Ajod, is up to, um, and in. I think Cities in Motion is that their first game. Um, I'm not sure. It's the first I've seen. Yeah, it's the first game. I, th- I think it's their first game. So in many ways, they're not. They don't have this idea in their head. They already have a UI that works. Right. They're not even dealing it with a legacy UI that that which that they've already be. programmed and stuff. So I mean, but it, it's it's fun to see the different stuff out there. And you know, like we said, Paradox is. I'm glad they're doing. They're publishing some lighter strategy games because there is that huge. There is that gap. Um, I think Cities of Motion is a good middle-brow strategy game. It's not really, really light. It isn't some Facebook game. There's right. some good economic stuff going on there. Um, it's the the, the middle-brow strategy title that's kind of just below Civilization. Or just around. And that's in the Civilization area, I suppose. Mm-hmm. The, um, and I think it, it's one of the games that can bring people in to this genre that I love so much. <laughs> um. So try. I did want to ask though. I mean, so so while you were there, what what did you see that that you that really got you excited? Oh, I want I want, I want Crusader Kings two now. Okay. I mean, I've always Crusader Kings is my favorite uh, Paradox game ever. It's not their best by a long shot. There's so many problems with that game, uh, but I love it. I love the soap opera. I love uh, the Lion in Winter stuff uh, that's going on in that game. Where you have families scheming against each other. It is. Uh, they had very little to show. I mean, yeah. To compare objectively what was in that presentation to what we saw in... Uh, it was no more than we saw of the new King Arthur game, of Sword of the Stars. Uh, but the uh, Chris King, who was doing some work there, he was the lead designer of Victoria 2, he just he, he, he sold the game. He understands what makes Crusader King special and what makes it different. And just listening to him talk, he could have been standing there in front of a static map of Europe with you know little puppet figures of Eleanor of Aquitaine beating up Henry II <laughs> with a stick, Punch and Judy stuff, and I would have been sold. Uh, it is a game that I want now, um, based on stuff that's actually moving. Um, uh, the naval, Arc- uh, naval warfare Arctic Circle. Yeah. Uh, that is the that game. Interesting. I want. I want that. I want. I have a good uh, hide and seek, hunt and kill modern naval war game, as fantastical as the idea is uh, in today's uh, modern political climate of, you know, the Russians posing a threat to real anybody that isn't in the, in, in the Caucasus. Uh, it is uh, a game I think there is room for in the market. It did, he, the guy mentioned Harpoon in the presentation, and I was mm-hmm. all, I was squeeing like a little girl, because uh, he has played Harpoon and knows it's special. Uh, that's a game I'm really interested in. Um, uh, it, it, it's a war game. It's 3D. It has all that neat sensor stuff happening. Um, I, I like modern naval warfare more than I do modern land warfare. I just I, I, I love the aircraft carrier stuff and the submarines and sneaking around and finding the enemy. It's really all about if you can see it, you can kill it. And if the games were that actually there was stuff to show, uh, animations and things, uh, I'm not quite sure how far out naval warfare is. 
But I think that is going to be uh, the sleeper hit uh, for Paradox. I like that it was uh, reminding me so much of like Hunt for Red October and, mm-hmm. and Crimson Tide and that idea of, of a ping, one a single ping on your sonar will uh, maybe get you, have you know where the opposing ships are, but that will alert you you know, ten yep. uh, miles out, as opposed to you know, you getting the good information and faints, and and the whole weather system was really interesting to me too. Like you know, that you'll be able to um, have cover aircraft uh, when it's not stormy, and and how that can affect and change everything. Yeah, I was really kind of excited about that too. Yeah, and I, I really, I really enjoyed sort of the way they were describing how they were going to balance these factions, making them a little bit um, asymmetric. Um, and I mean, I know, I know it's really speculative, like you said, Troy, that you know the the Russian Navy is going to be uh, playing the heavy um, in this game. But I, I kind of enjoyed how they were saying they were going to do that by um, relying on you know Russian Arctic Circle air bases. You know, Russians are going to rely very much on air cover. Um, they've got a lot of weapons to negate the advantage of other people's um, you know air superiority. Um, I don't know. They're, they're, I thought they had a lot of cool ideas for distinguishing the uh, sides in this game from one another. Yeah, and then once again, that, that goes back to Harpoon, where, you know, the Russians would generally have decent ships, but not great ships, but right. have, they would have, you know, backfire bombers that could fire which are missiles the size of apartment buildings that could take out pretty much anything they hit. Yeah. As opposed to the, light, the lighter, more mobile American forces. So, which is, it, I, I hope it works, and that is a game I'm, I knew nothing about walking into, but I actually came out uh, looking forward to, um, and also a little bit, I'll say, uh, one more uh, Gettysburg Armored Warfare, because I just love the name. Oh, wow. <laughs> I just love the name, just for the name. We should, we should talk about that. I mean, we, there wasn't much to say, uh, but you know, if, if you're sitting home, you don't, you don't know what it is. It's, well, it's crazy. Yes, completely <laughs> but, insane. It's a one-man development team, basically. Yeah, and he's my neighbor. He lives, you know, uh, ten miles from from my office uh, here down in North Carolina. Uh, I think he lives in Cary, actually. Uh, so I was actually kind of excited to, to to talk to him and realize he was building this whole thing on his own. He said his office has sixteen monitors all over his his room where he's he'll work on coding one thing and then shift to another computer and work on another. Kind of amazing. Yeah, um, it, it's basically a, a it's. It's part real-time tactical, basically, uh, but you can also jump in and fight from a first-person perspective. Um, and I mean, you know, for for a one-man show, I mean, technologically, I was really impressed. You zoom That's out; right. it looks like a, it looks a lot like a proper war game. It, you know, I looked at it; I thought it was, you know, some sort of Take Command spinoff. Um, and then he drops it to the ground level, and it looks, um, you know. Is as good as Mountain Blade. Yeah, yeah, and the story was was interesting too. That someone had discovered time travel uh, in the future and decided to go back to the Civil War and rearm the North and the South with uh, with, with modern day weaponry, uh, even future weaponry. I think too. So you have, uh, you know, the Confederates all decked out in body armor and tanks. Right, but but the crazy part is that. It's not like they all get super weapons. Like the predominant right. weapons in this alternate history are still rifled muskets and twelve-pound field guns. It's just that occasionally you're gonna have some guy wearing like power armor go running past yep. the uh, the cannon. Um, 
and he's going to be chased by um, sort of like a steampunk M1 tank. Yeah, exactly. I thought that was a really interesting kind of take on the whole, uh, you know, North versus South thing. Well, I thought it was funny. You know, he said his his initial concept, what he, what he pitched to uh, Paradox, was um, it was going to be pretty straight up sci-fi, right? Right, and he, and I think I actually asked him like, where did the idea come from? He said well, it was Frederick Wester, the uh, CEO of Paradox, said uh, to to make it a, a, a civil war game, and he and he ran with it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that, that that's probably a wise decision because I think if it was just somebody showing off sort of a Halo-ish universe with dudes running around shooting each other, you know, we've seen that before. Yeah, you'd probably tune out. Um, but this is, I mean, you know, it's the, it's that cliche. It's so crazy. It it just might work. <laughs> Absolutely, you've got Civil War, steampunk, and from some of the art that we saw, there are people running around with guns and basically football equipment, which. It, it worked for me. It really did. They had, there was that art with football equipment? I missed that. It, it basically oh, looked was. like football pads. <laughs> yeah, it, it was like, it was this really janky future armor. Like, you can tell they, they brought, he, maybe the, the future guy brought back part of a suit, and they saw it for five minutes, and they started building it out of whatever crap they had lying around. It, it's totally, it's totally Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future 3 wearing the, uh, you know, the bulletproof vest made from a cast iron stove. Nice. That's hilarious. Yeah, I love I love the steampunk idea too. That that uh, uh, that whole aesthetic has never really been done in a, in a in a strategy game, to my knowledge. Maybe you guys have, uh, know more about it, but you know that that's the kind of strategy game I would love to see. Something with airships oh, and Rise of Legends had a side that was pretty much steampunk. One of its that's true. That's true. Aside from that, you're right. Wait, is Rise of Legends the one that its 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 marketing campaign was recruiting posters for uh, the various factions, their print ads? Do you remember this? I don't remember. I that. don't remember that. I, I just, I just remember some sort of giant scorpion, like in the Uncle Sam poster, like pointing at me, and it's like the 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 Vinci want you or something like that. Oh, I mean, maybe I do not remember that, but okay, that that's ringing a bell, definitely. The unit anyway, the Vinci yeah. and the alien. All right, so one other thing I I wanted to get to was um we saw a lot of a lot of games this weekend and uh, yeah. we we talked about probably less than half of them um and i guess let, you know let's account for that um you know what what made presentation stand out for you um what are the secrets to doing it well and what made others kind of miss hmm well we haven't mentioned dreamlord's resurrection yet and i thought that was a pretty interesting idea i didn't even realize that this series has actually been going on for a while, that this is the third iteration of Dream Lords. Did you guys sit down for that presentation at all? Uh, yeah, and he, uh, I think it wasn't uh, someone, it wasn't one of the designers, it was one of the Paradox guys who was in charge of Paradox Connect. I'm forgetting his name right now. Um, but yeah, he had said that there was a, it was a self-published uh, MMO kind of RTS hybrid and that Paradox had taken over uh, for, this, for this new iteration. Yes, and for this presentation, now one of the big reasons it worked is because it's in closed beta right now. The game is basically done. They had all the pieces up and running and had everything to show, and he knew all the story, all the background, and it was really easy to to sit and be introduced to this game. Like All I did was sit and watch it play for about 25 minutes, but I am totally up to speed and ready to jump in, and, and that makes a presentation when you want the game. That's why Chris did such a great job with Crusader Kings. He knows what's go going to happen and makes you want to just jump in and get started. 
That's an interesting contrast because I, I it was actually the last presentation that I saw uh, for the whole convention. It was you know four o'clock on on Friday night, and uh, the, uh, the 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 guy that was running the presentation I felt was just very tired, kind of had done his spiel before, and uh, it, it was not a very compelling uh, thing. The game itself I thought was very interesting uh, because of all the things you mentioned. You know, it had all its working parts there, um, but it wasn't because of of any personal uh, uh, skill of the presentation itself. Actually, I have to change my vote. My best best presentation was actually the last one. At the same time, you were getting Dream Lords, I guess. Interesting. We had we had Frederick showing us Mountain Blade, and I'm gonna let Troy tell the story because it was just the best presentation I have seen, counting E3s of yore. Like this was just my favorite. <laughs> uh, it was it was something. Uh, Frederick Wester is CEO of Paradox. Um, if you haven't, there are many interviews with him online. He's probably most famous uh, for saying he would shave his head if uh, Victoria turned a profit. Uh, he's just one of these CEOs who's really, really invested in his company. He loves it. He's a huge Mountain Blade fan, uh, but was not that familiar with Mountain Blade Fire and Sword, the new Mountain Blade game. Uh, the developer, uh, Mikhail uh, Yazbek, was off doing something, so Frederick was there, tasked to show us this game. Uh, and he kind of sucked. Is kind of a nice way to put it. He, uh, I know he's generous. <laughs> he, he uh, asked, well, what can I show you? Well, show us the new firearms, because Fire and Sword introduces firearms to the Mountain Blade universe. So he, ride, he loads up his musket and his armor and rides it in a horse and levies his rifle and gets knocked down by a lance and chopped into tiny little bits. Uh, so he says, well, let me try that again. And it went just as smoothly the second time around. And you could tell he's a bit panicking here. He's so, is there anything else I can show you? <laughs> I, I don't know. I can't answer any of your questions, but is there anything else? And uh, this is a part of what I think what makes Paradox work so well as a company is to have a CEO who is willing to you know, just get in there and do the dirty work. Um, did I leave anything out there, Jen? Well, it, it shows why the game can work because a game really shows how fun it is when you fail, if you can fail and still have fun while dying horribly, you've done something right. And, you know, Frederick was having a great time racing around. He's already, he's almost got it aimed and oops, he got one shot. But you could still see, you saw the world, you saw the weapons, you saw how, you know, the tactics kind of formed around him and tried to compensate for him. And <laughs> that kind of sold the game oh, yeah, a little you bit. Could, you, you, could, you could see the soldiers like, oh my God, we're being led by an idiot. <laughs> you gotta protect him. So that that was that was certainly something to see. I mean, it's what makes a good presentation. A lot. It, sometimes it is the game. Sometimes the game can sell itself. Um, and I think that um, uh, the naval warfare game. I think that sold itself. If you're interested in that, you you will not not be interested uh, in that presentation. Um, Salem, you know, did didn't do a lot for me. It was interesting, but I can see why somebody who likes, you know, MMOs and crafting would have said, "Oh, wow, this is something I'm going to grab onto." So the game, a game can sell itself. But really, my piece of advice is, you know, if you make sure you have something to show. Um, if you don't have a rock solid presentation, um, you know, showing up with concept art is, I think, a mistake. Showing up with a couple of screenshots or a couple of screens or only one model of one unit, I think, is a mistake, um, unless you have this rock-solid rock star presentation because you really understand things. Um, and you know, don't get too invested in, uh, in your franchise. 
explain because there's I think this is I mean it's one thing if I'm there I mean people the people there who know me the paradigm most of the paradox developers know who I am I'm not going to this isn't bragging I mean I've, I've worked with them for many years so they recognize the name they listen to the podcast so they know they can talk to me about a bunch of stuff but there were people there from MMO uh, uh, publishers so there were the MMO publications who were there to see Salem and Dream Lords that's what they were there to see but they were being shepherded around to see everything um, and you got to present to them too you can't just you know wait for Rob or Evan or Greg or me to come around um, and say, well, this is what our game is, and of course you know all about this. Well, yes, I know all about this, um, so you can target me. But what are you going to do for these other people who aren't you know investors? How are you going to sell people who don't know uh, what NeoCore does? Why? What makes the King Arthur games so different from other games? Um, so it's interesting to see this niche publisher. And these niche developers, you know, trying to make the sale, um, and it's not always easy. And it's something that you know we try to do in this podcast is try to you know not always hit. We try to hit the niche people every now and then. We got to give our shout outs to the War in the East Yards. but there's it's such a beautiful and rich and deep genre, and you could see you know people saying, oh, well, this is a presentation that's gone well, because you turn to the people who aren't big strategy people and saying, well, this is something I might actually want to try. Um, and that's actually that that's kind of a pretty high praise, I think. Do you think there's a, uh, a you know people talk about the mainstream press and the gaming you know press as being two wholly different things, and you ha- and you know even at E3 you have to talk about a game differently to different audiences. Do you think that there's even a further fragmentation between the strategy game uh, game journalists and regular game journalists? I, th- I think one has developed. You know, I think as you know as as uh, this isn't not going to be accusing you know all the console people out there because they're all good people and some wonderful games out there, uh, but many game journalists are console first now, and the strategy genre has stayed very heavily in the PC. Mm-hmm. So there are people who just have not run into these games, for the most part. Um, I think that even within in, in the PC world, there's this huge fragmentation. Um, I am a strategy gamer. That's pretty much what I play. I play RPGs as well, um, but I don't play a lot of shooters. I don't play a lot of MMOs. So I'm kind of you know off my own little bunker, right. doing stupid things. And you know, I was talking to a PR person, uh, someone who I've worked with many times. And he says, you know, I'm I'm kind of glad you're coming over to our side, but you have to realize this really hurts us losing you. <laughs> Because there aren't <laughs> many people like you we can talk to. I said, well, there are actually more than you can think. I said, no, you don't understand. There are very few who, you know, respect the genre, talk about it knowledgeably, can write about it knowledgeably, uh, because it is something that's it's a genre that's done some really stupid, stupid things uh, in some ways as far as marketing and closing itself off. So, yeah, there's certainly a fragmentation. But, I mean, and, and I think on the PC side, larger than you have on the console side. Um, but, but it's not like strategy games are alone. Look at sports games. You know, outside right. of, I mean, you look at, you know, people review Madden, but nobody really reviews Madden. Nobody really plays it well. They just give it to their sports guy, who generally doesn't know it all that well. Right. There may be a handful of people who actually play uh, the sports games in really good detail, who understand both the sport and the game. Right. Um, so it's not like strategy games are alone here. Uh, but I think they're, I, I, I mean, this is, this is my, I mean, you know, Jen targets a much more mainstream audience than I do. So maybe getting her perspective on here would be helpful. Um, 
but I think that I think there there is an issue here. I think there is an issue for PR people and for developers who give presentations and for games journalists for making sure these games are both covered well because there is some really interesting, cool, and neat stuff that isn't all serious gloom and doom stuff out there that people should be playing and getting exposed to. But just communicating that is not really easy. Yeah, I think what's what's really lacking sometimes is enthusiasm uh, from from game journalists, um, you know, especially for for something that they're not necessarily uh, invested in personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I see that all the time where people will say a game's not good just because they didn't like it. They won't really realize that you know they can't divorce themselves from the idea that because they didn't personally enjoy the game that it's not a well made and well designed and even beautiful game, like as you said. Um, so I think that's always the problem when it, when they have to, to to cover strategy games. It's 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 not their cup of tea, and so it's hard to muster up that same level of enthusiasm that they would have for Modern Warfare. As one of those console people who plays all sorts of games but always ignore the strategy genre until Troy started saying, "No, no, you really have to to this stuff." I've been approaching it with this open mind. There's so many great things out there. I'm getting more and more versed in in how things work and how to find things in the UI. But one of my big problems with a lot of the presentations was listening to these people say, oh yeah, our new game is really accessible, and then dive into eight deep menus. And it's a lot to process at once, and especially when you're showing screenshots of just menus it's not the best way to bring in new people to your game. You're marketing to the audience that you already have. And that makes it harder for me to explain to other people why they should start caring. I totally yeah, agree. Absolutely. I think, I think, I think, I mean, part of the problem with, that Troy was talking about is, is uh, showing a game when you, all you have is a screenshot or, or, or something very small to show. I mean, that, that speaks a little bit to how far along they are in development uh, to some extent. Um, but, I, I think uh, this goes back to the larger issue of the of the UI problem we were talking about earlier, in that uh, there there's show, showing a screenshot of the of the user interface is really all that the game is, uh, and and your entire window into the game. So that's all people have been like, oh well, if you if you get this, then that you'll get the whole game. Um, but there's a difference between selling uh, what what makes a, a game more more interesting and, and compelling uh, that is not just how you interact with the game. And a lot of people miss that that step. They don't they don't show what makes this exciting uh, beyond the, the mundane things. If you click this button, you'll bring up this advisor. And well, so forth. A lot of times, it almost feels like they're used to explaining it to again, their loyal audience. So they kind of skip ahead to the part where it's like, well, here's what's different from what we've been doing. Here are the new features that you'll be interested in. And a lot of times what, what I think is, is missing is that opening pitch, the why are we here at all? And they skip, they skip right to the, well, here's how, we're, here's how we're continuing to evolve. And I've been, I've, been in those, I've been in those presentations where, you know, I, I am sort of familiar with the evolution of this series, but I'm with someone else who really has never heard of you or your previous games before. And how, how many times did you guys uh, sit down for a presentation and the first thing that was said was, so how much do you know about uh, Sword of the Stars? You know, a how lot. much yeah. do you know about this? Every single presentation started out that way. So there was yep. almost already this assumption that if you're here at this event, you know them. And then yep. they need to walk into it being like, I don't care if you have played it before or not. This is yep. what makes this game great. Well, and it's an unsafe assumption because, you know, I, I'm a Paradox fan. I love Paradox games, except I don't love all of them. 
Right. You know, I mean, you know, you make you make games that are good for hundreds and hundreds of hours of play. So it's it's the it's this sort of assumption that well, if if you're here at a paradox event, if you if you cover paradox games, you know what we're about. And at this point, you know, you know, you're not a huge publisher, but there's a lot going on within that brand. I mean, there's I want to you know point to two things that in presentation that really worked and the two two of this grand strategy games that I think I mean I already mentioned Crusader Kings and this Crusader Kings too and that worked because you know that presentation worked because the presenter Chris King sold you know the soap opera stuff he sold you know, all the cool things that could happen to your family so this is what this game is about is about building a dynasty and a family and how crazy things can happen you know that's not all what the game is about but it's the type of stuff that you know. A casual observer say, "Well, you know, it's kind of like The Sims. It's kind of like some role-playing stuff going on. I could actually be interested in this." So that's really neat. Then, you, uh, at the other end, you had also very good, but much deeper, more detailed. You had Philippe Thibault mm-hmm. presenting *Pride of Nations*, and he did a masterful job, I thought, uh, selling that game because he talked about. He had in pretty good detail, a lot of information, but this whole crisis mechanic said, "You know, you might think the game's over." But there's always this tension building, and you may have this huge lead in prestige, but if a big war starts, and you lose that big war, the game's over. So this trying to get around, I mean, in our podcast talk, there's there's a continual end game. You don't know when the end game's going to be. Uh, so that's always going on, and that's always a factor. And just this whole, this almost seductive talk about, well, when is the game going to end, and how is it going to end, and can you solve the crisis? And, you know, for people who know something about history, uh, like I do, I mean, this is like, Wow, I can actually have a Congress and try to settle these issues. And but even if you didn't, you could see well, this game really isn't boring because the whole word crisis just speaks to the you know if you follow politics and I, I can have like Egypt falling apart. That's actually kind of cool. Um, and I think people did an excellent job, you know, just going through the interface. Just didn't try to explain it in too much detail, but said the information's here. Blah blah blah. But I I thought he sold that game really well. I mean, I'm not sure if Jen Jen was with me. I'm not sure if she would agree because she was there with me at the same time. But Actually, I completely agree, 100%. I I was getting into it, and I was really surprised at the very end when I looked down and I saw that the suggested retail price is 20 bucks. There is so much in here for 20 bucks, and that's really close to an impulse buy purchase. So I would be very willing to just pick it up off Steam and give it a shot. Well, just you know, one th- one thing about Philippe's presentation is one thing that really struck me is he wasn't he wasn't hypnotized by his own work. There were there were a couple developers where you where you would ask them, well, why do I want to do that or why is that good? And there was this sort of half second hesitation because it was like, well, why wouldn't you want to do this? And Philippe, <laughs> there, there, there there never was that moment. The moment you know you say, well. I can see this might be an issue, or this might be a problem for me. Um, this isn't necessarily what I want. You know, a lot of times he, he sort of had already anticipated. He'd already thought through the weaknesses of this design, so that when when you start bringing up things that maybe aren't selling points but potential pitfalls, he's there with answers that if they're not entirely satisfying, they at least prove he's given it some thought. He's not assuming that they are completely on the right track. Um, but on the other hand, the reason I'm asking questions like that is. I look at a game like Pride of Nations, and hearing him talk about it, it sounds terribly exciting. But the problem is, I, I, I look over there, and I see a game that looks incredibly daunting. Um, you know, I mean, because I've played a lot of a lot of um, Age Odds War games, and this is this is 
they this is an age this is a very large age of war game tied into a fairly involved grand strategy game and you know and if you know Philippe was pretty upfront he he was like well this you know our fans have been sort of driving this direction they've been, they want more detail they want more options um and i'm 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 not sure that i'm not sure that, that that's going to work and that's the one thing Philippe didn't really sell me on and didn't really try he he seemed to kind of admit like well yeah this is a bit of a beast of a design and here's how i'm trying to smooth those edges what do you think? Uh, uh, I, mean, I can't really respond to that because I only got to see uh, half of a presentation of Pride of Nations, unfortunately. Um, but the, the, it brings up a whole interesting thing that you're talking about, Rob, about uh, it's the actual at this event, um, different from uh, a lot of other uh, uh, press events at other places. Um, you're actually speaking to the people who put their hearts and, and souls into these games. Um, Yes, you may talk to lead designers here and there, or producers on games um, at different companies. Uh, but in many cases, because of their small teams that are making all of these games, these are the people, this is their baby. And mm-hmm. for some people, it's very easy for them, like you said, to get lost with what uh, with, with their design and not realize that there may be potential problems or anything because you know you have to have that passion to drive you going forward, spending 16 hours a day and working on this game. Mm-hmm. Um but that doesn't necessarily make it the best person to present that game to an outside source. I was excited to to speak to um, the designers, uh, different you know, the people who are putting all their pride and energy into their mm-hmm. games. Uh, but are those the best people who are are, are equipped to do it? Would they have been better served uh, having uh, other people sell their games for them? I I kind of feel like it varied case by case. I don't I don't know about you guys. I found that. Um, you know, Johan, Chris King, uh, Philippe, I mean, they're not novices at this, and they've, I, th- I think they've all dealt at one time or another with, you know, with various types of failure. They're not, I don't know, it, 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 it's like they're, they're not, they're not naive about what they're doing. Um, right. they're, they're very experienced at presenting games, um, and they're not defensive about their games. That was a very big thing. They all seemed... They they they, never, they didn't seem like they were desperate for you to like their game. It was just sort of they wanted to tell you about their game and they left how you felt about it up to you. Um, I do I do kind of wonder about uh, some of the less experienced developers. I think I think there was a much more mixed bag. I definitely felt that there were cases where uh, developers simply were too close to their game to adequately explain it or field questions. Well, going back to like the Q factor of fun, the devs I think that had the most fun showing off their game were the Pirates of the Black Cove people. They're excited to say, look, look, you know, and you got your cannons here, and you got this there, and you can go save that lady and, and organize your squad, and oh yeah, and eventually you'll take over land and take on the pirates and take on the Empire and all that kind of stuff, get your heroes. But they were so excited to talk about it. They had some assets to go with it, but I did like seeing the enthusiasm and them admitting, okay, this isn't done yet, this is coming later. But they seem to have a pretty good handle on things. They weren't making unrealistic promises. They weren't saying, oh yeah, we're releasing next quarter. Yeah, and this was a, such a, that was such a big departure for Nitro. Nitro did the conquest of the Americas Commander game and East India Company, both very serious, very dry trading games. And this is 
not like, that. Not that. This is, <laughs> and it's like, well, like, I, I was because I, I, I've talked with Kim Soros there many times. He's been on the podcast uh, from Nitro, the lead there. Great guy. Uh, like him very much. Uh, wish his names were better. And it's he, but he wasn't there. And I said, okay, this is not a Kim Soros game. They said, well, let's let us. He just said, you know, what, what kind of game do you want to make? And everyone's like, oh, let's do something really kind of crazy. It's like, well, this is kind of crazy. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see it. I mean, that was really a fun presentation. I didn't really get a good sense for the game, uh, really, beyond, you know, riding around and blowing things up or sailing around and blowing things up. But um, It was very much like Sid Meier's Pirates, uh, yeah. at least, at least the, what we were able to see uh, yeah. combined, yeah. you know, with a little bit of light, uh, you know, adventure kind of style gaming, too. But um, I actually enjoyed their enthusiasm a lot too, uh, and you know I found myself laughing and kind of. But the thing that kind of struck me as odd was at the end of the presentation, uh, the guys from Nitro were like, "Well, what what do you want to see in this game?" <laughs> yeah, they, they were yeah. very open ended about it. They, they admitted that a lot yeah. of stuff was very fluid. So then it became this like extended brainstorming session with press and them, and then being like, oh, you know, even if we offered some ideas, they'd be like, oh yeah, we already have that in the game. What's something else? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. That's not really what I'm supposed <laughs> yeah. to be doing right now. Yeah. Uh, which I, I, I don't want to say it was unprofessional, but it seemed it, it threw me off. It definitely did because I'm like, why don't you have your your own idea? Don't you have these brainstorming sessions in other places? Well, I, I had a little rougher because at the end of, at the end of my presentation, it didn't go as well as your guys. I think I was I was the first presentation um, of the first day. Oh. Um. So then then quite found the rhythm yet, but at at the end of this presentation, yeah, it looked it looked like a fun Sid Meier's piratey type thing. Uh. But at, at the end, they just turned to me and and were like, "So, what do you think of this game?" Oh no! <laughs> and I mean, like, you know, I have I have no idea what to say say to that, you know, because I mean, there's really no answer. I, you know, you you, you want to be positive, but at the same time, like, you know, the honest answer is, well, I've barely seen anything. You know, yeah. like if you if you want to know if you want to know what I think of this game, I don't know. Show me more. Um, right. But at this point, you know, I, I've just played the ship combat mini game. Um, really, you, you've shown me like a proof of concept, um, and. You know that could go any number of a hundred of ways, but it, it's it's this it, it's I guess it's it's a pro tip for developers: don't put you know the reporters on the spot because your game's your, your game is in an embryonic state. We, we you you know as as good a job as you think you've done showing it, um, it's still a mystery. It's almost like they were trying to to gauge how their elevator pitch was going when. The game's already greenlit, supposedly. You know, so it's like, why? Why do you need that constant, uh, yeah, approval from from a third party? You know, you have your game. You know, it's yeah. not really my job to review it yet. This is we're here to preview it. You know, we're here to see it and get you know potential customers excited about buying it. I don't think you want our judgment at this juncture. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. This is why we don't review on the floor. We can't. We need our own environment. Nobody standing over our shoulders. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And, I, you know, to an extent, I don't even really want to... I don't even really want to make suggestions to a, to a designer while his game is in progress. If it's just, you know, us talking specul speculatively about games over drinks later that night... Yeah, okay, fine. We'll, we'll talk about what we'd like to see from games. But the moment we're talking about your design... You know, it's it's like, buddy, I'm I'm a I'm a non-combatant here, right? You know, like I, I wish you all the best. And I'm excited. I'm excited to see what you do. But you know, I mean, don't 
you know, don't confuse the fact that I, I love strategy games. I write a lot about them. Don't confuse that with with someone who can actually make like substantive, you know, contributions to your design process, or that we can really figure out what we want from one another. I think that's a real hazard. Um, you know, it, it it seems like we're on the same page. I think that's that's a really it, it's easy for it to feel like you and the developers are really clicking, like you want the same things. That has nothing to do with how, how you're both going to feel when that game hits the shelves. Right. Once you wake up the next morning and the beer goggles come off. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Now, it sounds like, Rob, you... Uh, uh, this is just based on what you're talking about with the presentations, but it sounds yeah. like you kind of offered a little bit more uh, kind of on-the-fly uh, questions that are of potential pitfalls as opposed to being like, oh, that's cool. You know, let me take notes on that and just absorb. Is that true? Do, do you find yourself actually being like, oh, what if, this seems like a problem. How, what are you going to do to fix it? Well, I mean, you know, just over the course of the show, um, I, I think we've sort of... You know, sort of tipped our hand that that we're kind of at least Troy and I are kind of obsessed with making things accessible and bringing new people into the hobby, pitching to people who aren't strategy fanatics. Right. And so whenever I sit down to look at one of these games, I mean, this is a genre I care about, and I always want these games to do well, and I always want them to find the larger audience that I think they deserve. And so I I always tend to sit down with a sort of you know, I I sort of sit down and I, and I bring I, and I bring this. I start looking for things that are going to turn people off off this, these games. Things that are going to seem inaccessible. Things that are going to take a good design, a lot of cool ideas, and make them completely opaque to people who don't have the time or patience to learn your Byzantine interface or read your 200-page PDF manual. Um, and so that's that's what I bring to these presentations. I, I want to hear. I start looking. I start. I start looking for signals from the developer that they're thinking of people outside the core audience, and and how to how to bring them in. Right. Um. And then okay. So, what? Who do you think actually is doing that better than than others at the show? Oh boy, um, Troy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say who's doing it better than anybody else. Uh, one of those one of the people there is my client. Yeah. Uh, of my new company, uh, I also that it's you can see that you know some companies are do some companies do it better than others, and but it's really hard to tell you know the final product what will be accessible or not. I mean, like I said, uh, and like I mean, Philly Tebow did give a great presentation which made me excited about his game. Um, does it mean it's going to be accessible? No idea. Yeah, right, right. Well, I think I think with with Philippe at least there was, you know, I I, I sort of raised. One issue I raised with him was the fact that this game spans 70 years. Um, and the grand campaign is, what, like 6,500 turns? Something yeah. like that? Yeah. Um, and I sort of raised with him, I brought up Rise of Prussia, because that was a game that I think really suffered from the fact that it had a tutorial scenario and then grand campaigns. And those are really the only, the only two settings that game had. And as someone who occasionally just wants to sit down and have like a deep board game length experience, you know, the mm -hmm. the in and out twenty turn scenario, um, you know, not having that because that's what really allows you to learn the game, right? To be able to experiment and see cause and effect over a short time span. Um, and so, you know, when I when I brought that up with him, he, you know, one thing he was able to do is immediately, you know, go to his scenario list and show that. This t with this game, they've taken a big interest in excerpting these moments from the Victorian era 
and letting you play through that. And it, I mean, it's one of those things where, again, it was just it was just an example of okay, so they have thought about people who maybe don't want to play this epic strategy experience. Um, so I mean, you know, that that was an example of doing it well. You know, I I would say the um, the Magnum Mundi guys, I, I had to I had to fight with them a little bit to get them to really explain why I. <laughs> to to get them beyond their sort of inher- assumption that their 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 game was inherently superior to what you get in EU three, you know, with that with them I sort of felt like there's a there's this assumption that well our game just has so much more going on, and you know Troy you're you're working you're working on trying how to you're trying to figure out how to bring more people into EU three, and that's maybe not where you should start. I cover, I love covering a lot of the free-to-play titles. So the big question that I always have to ask them is, well, there's almost no nice way to say it is, how screwed are players that don't invest real money into the game? Because mm-hmm. there's always that incredible imbalance. And because a lot of these free-to-play titles are a little on the early side, uh, Dream Lords being the exception, they can't really answer those questions yet as to how it's going to tie in, how many Paradox Ducats you have to buy, and how angry people will be when people with godly swords of awesome just come and wipe out everything you've got. Yeah. Well, the the, the one game that we haven't really mentioned yet uh, that seems kind of to to speak to all these kind of things is the um, the Hearts of Iron card game uh, that uh, you know seems to take that idea of uh, a hardcore audience, but then making it a little bit more accessible. Uh, in a strategy sense, uh, by making it a magic game, basically a magic, the card, magic, the gathering, mm-hmm. the card game. Um, you know, I actually was really kind of excited about all this guy. I play magic, the gathering. So like, you know, a lot of the things that they were doing and the design design decisions, uh, made a lot of sense. Uh, another thing that, you know, the problem with card games like that is that it's such a huge investment in money, uh, for, 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 for magic players. You know, if you want to stay current and, and have, uh, any kind of fighting chance against the people around you, you have to spend a lot of money. Um, it's a great business model for Wizards of the Coast. Um, but I thought that Hearts of Iron, uh, the card game, was interesting because it wasn't, it didn't seem like to have that huge uh, d- discrepancy, like that you would have to spend ungodly amounts of, of, of Dugats uh, to stay competitive. Uh, they only had, I think, 120 objects in the game, um, and you might get half of those, actually, when you sign up as free-to-play. Um, it, it seemed to have a lot more basis in strategy, and of course, you know, you, if you wanted to, to buy all the boosters uh, themselves, I think they were priced at a dollar each uh, for a booster of 15 cards, um, which, coming from Magic, where it's, you know, it's four dollars $4 for, for 15 cards, um, that seemed really kind of reasonable to me, and I was like, oh, well, that, that might actually draw in more people and get more people excited to play the game. Now, now, Troy, you you know the Hearts of Iron series pretty well. Yep. Um, is it truly a Hearts of Iron card game, or is it a brand? It's a, it's a brand. It's a World War II card game. It's just the battles. It's just armies fighting against each other with military doctrines. I mean, it's not Hearts of Iron. There's any political stuff going on. Hearts of Iron is now a brand. Uh, it is their biggest selling series still, uh, because people like playing World War II and killing Nazis. And, I hate those guys. Everyone's fine with killing Nazis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is just, it's, it's a World War II card game with the Hearts of Iron brand. I did not get to see it in action because the server was down uh, when we were doing our little round. So I'm not quite sure how it all works out or how it plays. Uh, but it's a collectible card game on World War II. I'm, I'm there. All right. Um, 
so that that was the Paradox convention. Um, you know, overall, I, I mean, this was this is my first Paradox Con. Um, I rate it really highly. I think it was a fantastic event. Um, I didn't get sold in every game, but you know that you're not you're not supposed to. Um, but I, I really came away enjoying the event a lot more than I expected, and I, I was surprised how many how many projects that hadn't been on my radar screen at all. I came away excited about. Uh, what about you guys? Uh, I agree. I think I, it was also my first time going to the to a Paradox event, and uh, I. I I had been following strategy games for a long time and kind of, you know, the more of the bigger games uh, like um, Civilization and, and StarCraft mm-hmm. II and all and all of the, the larger franchises. Um, and I hadn't experimented with uh, the smaller franchises. Uh, you know, the few times I have booted up bigger games like, you know, Empire Total War or Europa Universalis, I, w- I felt daunted by the UI and I considered myself a strategy gamer at the time. Um, so it was really interesting to go and see a lot of these games that, uh, like Troy said, seems to... To to uh, reach out towards the the new people and bring them into into the genre, and then I just thought that the Paradox people were really uh, really stand up, and uh, uh, I'm not sure if we said this before we started recording, but that you know they uh, it felt like they the the representatives the PR people there were happy to bring us uh, facilitate conversations between us and the designers, but they also knew when to to step away, and I thought that was really kind of important and made made the event feel like us. Uh, investigating these games kind of on our own at our own pace and at our own speed instead of you know the the big amalgam of an e3 where like you know you have everything being shoved in your face so i give it a thumbs up as well (laughs) very nice yeah this was my first paradox con and i was really impressed by the variety because you think oh okay paradox can be all strategy but it was nice to see the variety of titles coming and it was nice to actually put faces to the people behind the games and more importantly for me just see how it works see how the developers are going through the process and why they made certain decisions whether it's accessible or not and that helped me understand strategy gamers a little bit better to see how they all interact together and, and how they'd come to their decisions about their games yeah this was my second paradox con uh the last one was in sweden woohoo Last year, it was awesome. Sweden, want to go back? Uh, and this was actually my final event. I was invited as media. It was funny. I went up there, and they had a whole media badge set up. I was like, oh, you kind of have to change that, because I don't do that anymore. So it was fun to go around and not have to write anything. I could just watch the games and don't have to take any notes, You know, give my notebooks away. And say, I don't need this anymore. Woo! It was heaven. Uh, but it, 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 it's, I like working with the Paradox people. I mean, I... I write about their games a lot, even when they suck. Uh, generally because, and they, they have sucked. They've done some pretty terrible games, um, and they know that. And, but they've always treated me with, you know, the greatest respect, uh, and they treat media with great respect. Uh, they value people's opinions, and they they reach out to, uh, you know, people who who might have only marginal interest, but they think might want to write uh, about the games. They have a huge community. They Once again, they, they brought a fan to the Stockholm one. They brought a fan to this one. They bring a fan to every convention. The fan goes around and takes pictures and has blogged about it on their forum. Um, the Paradox, if these Paradox conventions are really kind of a model, I think, that a lot of, because Paradox is becoming a pretty big publisher. Mm-hmm. This, is the, this is the new strategy first. Uh, without the bankruptcy. Yeah, let's, not, let's not say that. <laughs> okay. it, is, it is strategy first before strategy first went off the rails. It is the, it is the big uh, strategy game publisher. They're going out and they're gobbling up smaller 
studios. They're owning Europe in many ways. Uh, they do some great, great work, and they have a great CEO and great PR people, both in Europe and in the U.S. and in Canada, working with the devs. Um, and they know how to put on. They know how to put on a good show. Um, they've never held anything I've written bad about them. Uh, against me, and they've never assumed I'm going to write anything good. All they know is I talk about their games and I evangelize uh, for the genre. They're they're good people, and it was a good show. And as Jen said, it's exciting to see them branch out and do different things. It's like it's really really cool. Uh, before uh, we go, I do want to remind. Uh, can I just remind people of something? Yeah, go for it, man. That on February fifth. Uh, the DC area Flash of Steel Three Moves Ahead meetup is going ahead at Gordon Biersch, uh, the Gallery Place subway station in Chinatown in Washington, DC uh, at 2.30. Uh, Gallery Place Chinatown Metro, yes. Uh, the more details will, of course, be on Flash of Steel. A reminder that Dr. Bruce Garrick has said he will make an appearance, um, hopefully for more than just however long it takes to make me mad at him, which won't be very long. So please come, say hi to Bruce, and say hello to me, because who knows? I, someone someone could, be, could die. It could be me. Come and see. That was <laughs> ominous. Yeah, what happens at the Flash of Steel meetup will shock yes. you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Flash mobs. In comes Jack Bauer Molotov to save the day. Cocktails. It's DC, anything can happen. So February 5th, 2.30. Be there, or be an MMO player. <laughs> hey <laughs> <laughs> alright and on that note I will stop us there um, thanks so much to everyone for uh, for coming out for my first my first flight as host um, well done, well done. Uh, first mm-hmm. job hosting yeah thank you and uh, Greg thanks for you know thanks for making time for us and no problem. Jen thanks you of so course but I consider out. you as a semi-regular panelist oh, oh thanks <laughs> she, she should be a semi-regular panelist I'm learning uh, a lot. We'll see how it goes. You guys can teach me how to do things right. George oh, yeah. is becoming a backseat driver already. <laughs> oh, I, I have a list for him. Are you kidding? <laughs> things he can and cannot say. Games he can and cannot hate. <laughs> All right. And on that note, uh, we'll see if Troy keeps me around next week. Uh, but hopefully I will, I will be there next week to uh, talk strategy games some more with you. I have no idea what we're going to talk about. Uh, oh, so my see, first, you're, my you're first already... initiative as host is already failing. But hopefully I'll pull something out more than 48 hours in advance. You don't have a topic for next week. They grow up so fast. Well, I'll say, it looked a lot easier when, when you were floundering with topics. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good night, uh, everyone. Say so good night. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Good night.